The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Tonight we want to move ahead in our series in 1 Corinthians and we're turning to chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins a section that will last for three chapters really uh, focused on spiritual gifts and nothing makes a good Presbyterian squirm in the pew quite like a series of sermons on spiritual gifts uh, it seems. The topic of spiritual gifts seems to bring to mind for, for many visions of people rolling on the floor speaking in gibberish or or perhaps claims of miraculously healing neck pain uh, on, on an afternoon. Or, or maybe, maybe you think back to an awkward conversation that started something like this. So what happened to you yesterday? God told me you were in trouble. Um, I, many of you have had conversations like that. And so we get these perhaps distorted visions of uh, spiritual gifts that, that are maybe uh, distortions of the Holy Spirit's work in and through believers. But it's certainly wrong to skim over or be uneasy about what the Bible has to say in these chapters. Actually, we had one pastor uh, uh, this week who, who had to warn part of his congregation that they should stop using the term anti-spiritual gifts to describe themselves. And his point, which uh, is well taken, is no one who reads the Bible should be anti-spiritual gifts any more than we should legitimately uh, perhaps oppose uh, distortions or incorrect doctrines of the work of the Holy Spirit. But we're here in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Would you join me uh, as we read the first 11 verses of chapter 12? Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one And the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this portion of Scripture. I thank you for the comfort, the encouragement, the challenge that it is to us. And I pray that this Spirit that we are reading about would be at work in our hearts tonight. To the glory and praise of your name. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. We arrive at chapter 12, and and you'll remember that we're in the middle of a section of the book of Corinthians where Paul is answering questions on a number of topics that the Corinthians had posed to him. 
Uh, They have talked about suing and sexuality, marriage and divorce, meat sacrificed to idols, head coverings in the Lord's Supper. And Paul has uh, gone through answering question after question on different topics that the Corinthians had had. And now at the beginning of 12, he signals that he's moving on to another topic when he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. But unlike some of the previous topics, Paul doesn't really give us any indication of what the Corinthians' question was. With a number of the topics, he's given us some indication of what they'd asked or we have some understanding of where he's coming from. Here he jumps right into the topic of spiritual gifts and we have a little bit less of an idea of what the specific question was. But whatever the specific question was, I think it's important for us to understand that Paul's comments here on the work of the Holy Spirit would have been earth-shattering for anyone coming out of uh, a Gentile background into Christianity. And there's a number of reasons for that. If you think in the background of pagan religious experience and uh, the the work, uh, perhaps, of Greek and Roman gods and and the belief and and the mythology and the pantheon of gods that, that many of these Gentiles would have had, It was typically the case, or typically thought, that uh, a person who was really close to the gods or had a particular or unique relationship with the gods could often receive the uh, sort of ecstatic experiences or these ability to sort of be overcome by the god uh, and and deliver these prophetic or or, um, unique revelatory messages. And so something that was supernatural, particularly in what they said, I was considered to be possessed by the gods, which indicated a unique relationship to a particular god. And of course, for the Gentiles, you'll remember, there were many gods that they believed in. And so for each god, that ecstatic experience or that that ability to speak in a tongue might look a little bit different depending on which god they supposedly had a special relationship with. So that's the background that a Gentile would be coming from. And it wouldn't be surprising that a a former Gentile who's now become a Christian might carry some of the same expectations with him into Christianity. And so if you've got a background where the ability to to speak in a tongue or give a prophecy or speak in some supernatural manner, if that meant a particularly close relationship with God, you can imagine the conversation that might go on in the church. Maybe, you know, you're sitting in the pews in Corinth and all of a sudden there's the buzz. Hey, look, you know, John over there. John was able to speak in this tongue with this miraculous voice. He was able to prophesy. You know, he must, he must really be in good relationship with God. God might, must really favor John there since he's got this ability. And, and so the buzz, you know, begins to go around the church that, you know, John here, he's got a really special relationship with God because he's got the ability to speak in this, in this tongue. But uh, then the buzz gets a little bit more confusing because then over here there's Mark and, and Mark over here, well, Mark doesn't speak in tongues, but he can heal people. Well, well, what if the Holy Spirit allows people to prophesy and speak in tongues, then what is it that's allowing people to heal people? Because in paganism, different gods gave different gifts. Different gifts and different abilities meant different gods. So, well, is the Holy Spirit giving this one and Jesus is giving this one? or is there di- You can see how the Corinthians, given their context, weren't sure what to do with these, these gifts that God had given the church. Did it indicate a special relationship with God? Was there different gods or was there different relationships with Jesus and the Spirit? There was a lot of confusion because of the background that the Corinthians were coming from. And you can imagine, you'll remember as we've worked our way through the book of Corinthians, we've seen how the Corinthian church was being divided 
by people who were jockeying for position and creating divisions. And you could imagine how if one person starts to claim a particularly unique or special relationship with God because he got to speak in a tongue, how that starts to add to the divisive nature uh, of the Corinthian church. So here's the background in which Paul jumps in and says, now concerning these spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And he, he begins, as he works through this text, to, to lay the foundation for two very important theological points about the work of the Spirit. And I want to begin by looking at those. First, Paul emphasizes in the first three verses that every believer, every believer has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has dramatically impacted the way every single believer speaks. Now, this would have been, uh, this would have been a, a unique or surprising thing for someone coming out of a Gentile or pagan background. Everyone gets the Holy Spirit. God dramatically impacts everyone. Even someone from a Jewish context, if you think in the old, from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, surely the Holy Spirit came upon specific people, but not every Israelite. Every Israelite couldn't lay claim to the work of the, or the, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. But if you look at verses 2 and 3, Paul narrows in on this very important theological point. In verses 2 and 3, I think it's important to recognize up front, are pretty sparse, both grammatically and contextually. There are uh, some, some words that uh, are, are not, not missing, but um, in, in Greek you can supply words or imply words. And so it's a pretty sparse sentence, and we're left trying to figure out exactly what Paul was trying to imply. And so commentators differ exactly on the interpretation But I think the majority of them, uh, I would agree with, in taking verses 2 and 3 to be Paul's statement that every single believer, every single person who declares Jesus is Lord, does so because the Holy Spirit is in him and dramatically affects what he says. Look at Paul's logic here in in these verses. In verse 2, Paul says, this is what you know. You know that you were once pagans, and as pagans you were led astray to different idols. You were following them. Uh, You were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And he says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Now, some people ask, well, were there a specific group of people that were going around saying Jesus is accursed? And I think the best commentators will say, no, we're not talking about a particular person or a group of people. We're talking about all of those who don't worship Christ, all of those who do not follow Christ. All of those who would gladly say in the Roman context, Jesus is accursed. You may remember in the Roman context, particularly in the persecution, that was a common test of a, of a believer. You would go and say, will you curse Jesus? And those who were not Christians would say, sure, I'll curse Jesus. And so this is a common phrase these commentators would say to say, if the Holy Spirit has not worked in you, sure, Jesus is accursed. But if you're willing to say Jesus is accursed, the Holy Spirit of God is not in you and has not worked in you. On the flip side, Paul says, anyone who says Jesus is Lord has been dramatically changed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because no one declares sincerely, and of course we understand Paul to be saying no one sincerely says Jesus is Lord, unless the Holy Spirit has changed his heart. So you see Paul's point. If you have gone from being a pagan who would willingly say Jesus is accursed to someone who says, no, I now proclaim Jesus is Lord, the only way that has happened is that you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
that the Holy Spirit has powerfully worked in you and changed the way you talk. This is a very practical uh, thing that Paul is saying. The Holy Spirit's speech, in other words, Paul's, Paul's initial point is, the Holy Spirit's speech is not primarily characterized by strange sounds or, or future predictions or profound spiritual utterances, tongues, prophecies. That's not the primary indication that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. The primary indication that the Holy Spirit is at work is when a lost, dead sinner whose only desire is for himself who's captivated by vain idols of the world and is hurtling towards death is suddenly arrested in his headlong pursuit of himself and suddenly says, Jesus is Lord. What could cause a person heading towards death, delighting in himself alone, to suddenly reverse course and say, praise to the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Only the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, look, If you pronounce Jesus is Lord, the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And the Holy Spirit is impacting the way you talk and your speech. Because that is the only way you can proclaim Jesus as Lord. So that's Paul's first theological ground point here. You believers, it's not just unique believers who can speak in tongues that have the Holy Spirit. It's not like only someone who can prophesy has been given the Holy Spirit. Everyone who proclaims Jesus is Lord is an evidence of the work of God in his heart through his spirit. That's point number one that Paul wants to make. But the second point that Paul wants to to make, the second theological point, uh, is found in verses 4 through 6 here. And Paul says, um, while there are a number of different gifts that the Holy Spirit gives, this is not evidence of a number of different gods, as it was in paganism. Rather, all of the gifts are given by the one God. Yes, it is a triune God. And you'll note how, how Paul indicates the, the, the triune nature of God in verses 4, 5, and 6 as he talks about this. But Paul's point here is that there is no sort of special area of the Holy Spirit or special area of Jesus or special area of God. The one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the one who endows and enables and empowers all of the different gifts that the Corinthians were witnessing throughout their church. What Paul's arguing here is that there's not uh, one really good spirit that you can get from God, or not, not one really good gift you can get from the Holy Spirit, while the rest of us, we don't really have much of the Holy Spirit, or, or, or maybe we have just a little bit. No, what Paul's saying here is every gift is given by the same Spirit of God and empowered by the same God. Look carefully at verses 4, 5, and 6, and you'll see how Paul does this. He, he balances his statements very carefully in a, in a way that emphasizes God's unity, but also God's trinity. You'll see that it says there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, a variety of services, but the same Lord, a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all. Well, what are we talking about there? Let's, um, let's work through them. I think we have a, a decent idea of what he means when he says there are a variety of gifts because he starts to enumerate them in the next couple of verses. He's saying there are a number of different gifts that, that men have, a number of different abilities that God has given, and the same Spirit is behind them all. What's this thing about services and activities? Well, um, a variety of service but the same Lord When Paul says that uh, the Son, God the Son, the Lord, has given a variety of service, he means that 
God the Son has given many different ways to serve the church to different people. I think this is perhaps uh, most easily seen if you were to flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's again addressing this idea that there are different ministries, as he calls them here, um, that are given by Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, he says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And in saying he ascended, uh, what does it mean uh, but that he also descended? And he who ascended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then Paul goes on to to list a number of different gifts or ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, which in the context he's saying were given by Christ, who gave gifts to men. So what are we saying here? Paul's saying there are a number of different ministries or services, ways to serve and minister in the church that Christ has given to his people for the benefit of the church. What about activities? Activities is a really bad translation here, I think. When I read the word activities, I think of something really bland, like um, a bunch of things that I try to fill the time with at a three-year-old birthday party or a kid's carnival or something. Like, we've got the kids craft activities over here, and we've got the athletic activities over here, and we've got the carnival activities over here where you can win the goldfish that will die tonight or live for six years, but nothing in between. You know, we've got activities. Um, And activities is just really broad and general and bland. This Greek word is not a broad, bland, or uh, general word. The Greek word is energemata. And you can get the word energize from this. What, what this is saying is that God is the one who energizes, who empowers, who infuses strength in his people for these different um, works that they will do. So as we, come away from, as we come away from this picture here, what we're seeing is that God is the one energizing a people in different ministries and services that Christ has given with gifts that the Spirit is empowering and applying for each one. Now, I think, um, I do want to state that I don't think Paul's point here is to sort of uh, take a knife and, and precisely chop up exactly what each member of the Trinity is doing at every minute. And I think as we read the Ephesians chapter, you can see there's some overlap in how he talks about the Spirit in Christ. But I think what Paul is trying to do is to say, there is one God. He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit working together as one to empower and able and apply every gift that we see in the church. So you see Paul's answer here to the Corinthians' questions. Are there people who have a special gifting of the Holy Spirit? No, every believer has been gifted by the Holy Spirit. Every believer has been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. And the different gifts we see. How do we understand the different gifts? The different gifts we see in the church are all different gifts being used and applied, energized, given, and enabled by the one triune God. Paul lays theological groundwork to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and to answer the questions that the Corinthians had. Paul, after laying this groundwork, gives several examples of the specific gifts in verses 8 to 10. And you'll notice as you read through this list of gifts in in verses 8, 9, and 10 that he focuses particularly on supernatural gifts. Um, He talks about healings in tongues, prophecies, utterances of the Spirit. 
And I think, um, as read most commentators, he's focusing on these supernatural gifts largely because of the specific question, although we don't know what it is, the specific question that the Corinthians asked. But if there's anything we can uh, say about this list, we can say that it is not an exhaustive list of every gift that God gives to his people. There's at least four different passages in the New Testament that talk about different gifts that God gives to his men. We have this one here in First uh, Corinthians 12, but uh, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and First Peter chapter 4 all talk about different gifts that God gives his people. And I th- think uh, if you were to add up the different gifts that are, are listed, there'd be over 20 different gifts listed in the New Testament as specific gifts God gives his people. So this list isn't an uh, exhaustive one here. In addition to not uh, being exhausted, though, I think what we can say is that God has richly blessed and gifted his people in a variety of ways that bless the church and bring him glory in many different ways. But you'll see Paul's emphasis as you read verses 8, 9, and 10. As he emphasizes each gift, what does he come back to? There's this gift, but it's the same spirit. This gift, but the same spirit. This gift, but the same spirit. As Paul lists different gifts that God has given the church, he comes back again and again to emphasize that they are all applied within the church by the one and the same Spirit. Every gift, every different gift, is unified by the Spirit who has worked and is working in all God's people to unite them in Christ. So this is, this is the theological groundwork. Every believer has the Spirit, and every different gift we have been giving has been given by the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As, uh, as pastors, uh, the three of us who are preaching through 1 Corinthians have agreed that we're going to wait until chapter 14 to address questions of, well, what happens about tongues and gifts and healings? How do those apply to the church today? And, and questions about how should we think about supernatural gifts, we're going to address those more specifically in chapter 14. But I want to spend the rest of our time tonight looking at three particular applications that Paul brings out about spiritual gifts. He's given us the theological foundation. What do we hear about how that applies to our life in the church? Well, first, note that Paul emphasizes in both verse 7 and verse 11 that every believer has been gifted by the Spirit. To each one, Paul says in verse 7, is given a specific manifestation of the Spirit. In verse 11, he says that uh, the one and the same Spirit apportions to each one individually, just as he wills. In other words, God is not just drawing in broad brushstrokes saying, well, church, I want to give these gifts. Here's this collection of gifts, and as long as we get all these gifts in, the church will be fine. No, God's saying to each believer individually, believer, This is the gift I am giving you. Believer, I am gifting you in this way. To each believer individually, God has given a gift, a spiritual gift to be used in his church. And this is really a stunning truth. Throughout Old Testament times, again, as we said, God's spirit was certainly at work. But now Paul's saying God's spirit isn't coming down at different times on specific people. God's spirit is coming on every believer to empower each believer specifically and individually as he wills. Note note how this elevates the significance of every gift. Even though we know it's wrong, I don't think we can help at sometimes comparing our gifts to other people. And we we sort of have this hierarchy like the Tim Kellers and John Pipers of the world, they have gifts that are really good 
And then, you know, the, the youth pastor and the nursery worker in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, they've got an okay gift, but, you know, they sort of stack up like this. Or at least that's how we interpret them. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying every individual believer has been gifted precisely and exactly in the way he wills for the good of his church. You, believer, and I, believer, have been gifted exactly the way God wants us to for the good of his church. And his church would not be where he wants it to be if we were gifted more or less or differently because his spirit has worked exactly his will in each of us. So note how it elevates the significance of us and our gifts that God has given us as believers. But note also how it elevates our responsibility. If God has given you and me a specific gift that he wants us to use by his spirit, then we have a responsibility to use that gift in his church. I think many of you uh, have heard or are familiar with the 80-20 principle that applies in most organizations and certainly the church where people will say, well, 80% of the volunteer work is done by 20% of the people. And unfortunately, this is largely true. That 80% of volunteer work tends to be done by 20% of the people. And if you look across the church, this is well supported. Paul is challenging us here. Paul is challenging us here and saying, look, do we understand what it means to be gifted by the Spirit? Do we understand that every one of us has been gifted specifically? And therefore, every single one of us ought to be serving in his church. I think this is exactly what Paul was urging the Roman Christians when he wrote to them in Romans chapter 12. If you flip over to Romans chapter 12, you'll see how clearly and specifically Paul puts this. In Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What's Paul's point? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If God has gifted us by his spirit individually, let us use the gift he has given us. That's the first application. But the second one, Paul brings out clearly at the end of verse 7 in our text. Paul states very clearly in verse 7 that God's purpose in giving us spiritual gifts is for the common good. See verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The reason God gave us gifts was not for ourselves. Not to give us meaning in life. Not to give us a specific role to play so we'll be satisfied or, or content. It was for the good of God's people. I think this is brought out even more uh, specifically in, his, in Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians. I read a portion of Ephesians 4, but in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, Paul says this, He's given apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why have we been given gifts? So that we can all grow into the fullness of Christ. That's the purpose that we've been gifted. Yes, there are many gifts, but they're all given for that one purpose. I think that emphasizes two things. Certainly it emphasizes that we've received a gift from God so that we might use it for one another. It's not for our good, it's for the good of the church. 
But I think it also emphasizes how important it is for us to be both giving and receiving the blessings of our fellow brothers and sisters. We've all been given gifts, but none of us is self-sufficient. And none of us can say, well, I'm going to spend my whole time giving in the church, and I'm never going to interact with people in a sense that I receive a blessing in the church. There is a community here where every person has been gifted, and others have been gifted in areas we haven't been gifted. And so for the body to be healthy, we must be giving of the gift the Spirit has given, but we also must be in a context where we're receiving the gifts of others. That's what the healthy body looks like. We'll see this uh, further next week um, as we go further in chapter 12. But if one believer who has a gift thinks he's self-sufficient, he is wrong. We need to be in the community of God's people, all giving to each other, but also all receiving from one another the gifts that God has given us. I remember taking a macroeconomics course in high school. Some of you know economics a lot better than I do. But for some reason, this one principle sticks in my mind, and it was the principle of comparative advantage. Maybe some of you remember comparative advantage from economics class. And it was this principle that uh, economics said, uh, ec- economists said every country or state is best at doing something. And some countries might be better at more things than other countries, or a big state might be better at everything than a little state, but every country is best at something. And the economic principle was if every country would do what it was best at and trade with one another the world would have the most growth that it could possibly have. It's a great principle. And of course, when you think of the global economy, there's problems. There's trade agreements and war and sin and selfishness, and and that gets in the way of this principle. But I think it's a good picture of the body. What God is saying is, if each one will use the gift that the Spirit has given, not for himself but for the sake of the body, the body will flourish as each one uses the gift that God has given to him for the benefit of the whole body of Christ. This is the picture of the body of Christ. Growing and healthy, because each one is using what the Spirit has given him. So that's the second application. First uh, application that we have a responsibility to use the gift God has given us individually. Second uh, application that, that this when everyone is using the gift God has given them, then the body will grow the way God has intended it to grow. And finally, and very briefly, I want to make one note of an application that that probably doesn't come out as clearly in this text as it does from others on, on giftings of the Spirit. We have a beautiful picture here of God granting gifts through His Spirit so that His people may build one another up and the church may grow. But what happens when the church grows because each individual believer is blessing one another with the gifts God has given it? What happens? The name of Christ is glorified. The name of Christ is glorified when the church is growing this way. You may remember last week when Dr. Rogers was talking about the work of the Spirit, and he used the analogy of a spotlight. And he said that the work of the Spirit is not to draw attention to himself. It's to be a spotlight on the work of Christ. Well, the same is true of the way that the Spirit gifts us. When the Holy Spirit works in us and gives us gifts, the goal is that the body might grow to the glory and praise of the name of Jesus Christ. I think 1 Peter brings this out. 1 Peter chapter 4, the last passage that we haven't looked at on gifts of the Spirit. Peter says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
And after listing gifts, he concludes this way, let us use them in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Because the question we need to ask ourselves is this. If the watching world sees a church using the gifts they've been given to bless one another so that the church flourishes, what are they going to say? They're not going to say, oh, wow, they've come up with the perfect political system. They're not going to say, oh, look, there's a commune that actually brings peace and happiness. They're going to say, how in the world do men get together and do that? And the only and obvious answer is because Jesus Christ died for them and the Holy Spirit applied gifts to them through Christ and the whole world says, glory to Christ. When we use the gifts that God has given us and given us through his Spirit, 1 Peter says the result is, in everything, God is glorified through Jesus Christ. And that's what I want us to have in mind. Why do we do this? We do this to the glory and praise of the name of our Savior. That in everything, his name may be glorified. And that's what will happen if we as a community bless one another with the gifts the Spirit has given us. Let's pray. Father, our God, you have sent your Son who died for us. And by your plan, you have united us to yourself by your Spirit. In so doing, you gave each one of us gifts which you intended to be used for the the building up of the body in Christ. I pray that you would challenge us to use our gifts for for the benefit of the church so that as the church grows, the watching world and those in the church will join in unison to say, glory to Jesus Christ, glory to the name of our God, who alone could bring about this glorious body from sinful men. We pray that your name might be praised. In Christ we pray. Amen.